Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for allowing us to be able to come here and worship God um, through singing, through the Lord's Supper, through hearing your word, through prayer, confession, repentance, reflection. Um, this is about, about Jesus. This is about Christ being able to come here and worship. And so we ask that now, God, as we turn to your word, as we turn to mission and what it means to be a follower of Christ, that you would be with us and that, Holy Spirit, you would come now. And, and for all of us that know Jesus, that are walking with Christ, Lord, would you convict us where we need convicting, but also couple that with your, your comfort that you always give, Lord. And so, for those that don't know Christ this morning, if there's anyone here that doesn't know Jesus, we pray, Lord, that you would, um, as we talk about the gospel, as we talk about what it means to be a follower of Christ in the context of a local church, we pray, Lord, that you would use this to regenerate their heart and that they would see the beauty of Christ, see the beauty of the gospel, see the beauty of being forgiven and not just forgiven by God, but having a relationship with Him and how beautiful it is to know Christ. And Lord, would you draw men to yourself, men and women to yourself this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're here today... Um, for the very first time, you've caught us on a bit of a different type Sunday. Uh, for the next four Sundays, as I said, normally we just pick a book of the Bible and preach through books of the Bible. We've, we've done that for basically since we started with a few exceptions like this, where we kind of just talk about mission. But in the fall, every fall, um, right around this time, uh, for people that are kind of new for us and hadn't heard this little sermon series, we talk about what is the mission of Remedy Church? What are we here to accomplish? What are we trying to do? So for those that are new into the congregation, this is your time to be able to hear for the first time what's our mission. And for those of you that have been here the whole time, this is a great reminder for all of us of what we're wanting to do here as a church. So um, it's good that you're here. And I encourage if, if this is your first week to attend all four of these weeks as we're talking about what's the mission of Remedy uh, the mission um, of Remedy, let me just kind of read the, uh, the mission statement to you. It says this, Remedy Church exists to glorify God by calling all peoples into fellowship with Him and with one another through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's, it's written in a really broad context. Any church that is biblical would really say, yeah, I agree with those things. And you can just see that we're... we're Primarily, we want to glorify God. We want to call people into fellowship, not just with us um, as a congregation, but also uh, fellowship with Christ, which means that they've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and that they know Him and that they would be sent now to help uh, care for, for God's people in this church and then also be sent out to care for those who don't know Christ. So um, this sermon is a little bit of a different kind of sermon. It just serves really as an introduction to the rest of the time. So um, the rest of the time we're going to be talking about, not this week, but the rest of the time we'll be talking about what are our five core values. And I'll just kind of unpack those five core values over the next three weeks after this. And the five core values are sufficiency of Scripture. And I'm actually going to tweak these a little bit. I'm going to put more inside of what have been traditionally our five core values. And they're going to stay the same, but just that we would develop a deep love for these things. So not just sufficiency of Scripture, that we believe that, but a love of Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture. And, and the next one, next core value is that we want to equip you for ministry, or another way to say it is that you would be ready to do uh, 
have a missional life, that you would have missional living as a part of who you are. The next thing that's a core value to us is service, that we want to be a church that serves each other and serves the city. Uh, the next core value is worship. And so that's that kind of focuses in on, on the Sunday gathering aspect, but we want to hold that up high and we'll unpack this later. And the last one is community, that we, we really want to live in community with one another. So those are the five core values that after this, we'll be talking about. And really over the next four weeks, there's kind of a big picture question that I want to answer. And that is this, what does it mean for you to be a part of Remedy? Like that's kind of the big, 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 picture, big picture question that we want to answer over the next four weeks. Um, but at the end of, de- end of today, this is the last thing we'll talk with, is why you're going to hear me talk about mission, 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 mission. And so really to, to end today... Um, I want to talk about why is all this mission talk important. And so I'm going to save the best for last, in my opinion. Not that, that what I have to say is great, but that's whenever we'll, we'll go through Ephesians 2 and you're just going to, hopefully Christ is going to show you the greatness of, of himself in the gospel. And that's why all this mission talk is important. And because I think that's the, the best and that we're saving it for last, that's going to kind of ensure my brevity at, <laughs> at all the other points because I really want to get to that and I really want to have enough time for that. So um, hopefully I won't be going too long. So here's, here's, the, uh, here's the thing. In, in, in whenever someone does public speaking of some nature, um, there's, there's really different ways that people, after they hear things, can leave. And so if, if you're, you go to class and you're kind of bored out of your mind and your professor's just stay, saying stuff and you're like, oh, this is ever going to end, um, and, and that lecture kind of format, uh, really, you're going to leave with information. And that's not really what I'm after. But also there's kind of a motivational speech where you're not bored out of your mind, but you're engaged. And those kinds of, uh, those kinds of talks really leave you with action steps. But sermons are different. And so this is going to feel in some ways like those first ones because it is informational. However, sermons don't want to, I don't want you to leave with just information and I don't want you to leave with just action steps. Sermons should always cause you to leave worshiping. Like that's my goal. So as we're going through this and you're going to feel, all right, this is informational. He's telling us things about the church. My goal though is not that you would leave hopefully bored, but also I don't want you to leave with just action steps, but I want you to have encountered Christ in the gospel this morning. I want you to leave worshiping. I can't believe what Christ would do for me on the cross. So that's my goal today, even though there will be some informational feel. Now, this is the third time I've had a go at this in 2009, 2010, and now 2011. Um, and so each time I, uh, I try to give some warnings that I've kind of discerned uh, of where Remedy has, has kind of gone through. So in 2009, some of the warnings I gave Remedy as a church, we had been a church for roughly nine months. And so um, <laughs> some of the discernings I said is, so these are some of the things that I think we need to really think about. This is 2009 as a church. And I've seen God um, really kind of, kind of bless us in this. Some of the things were we had a lot of just, you know, we love knowledge, we love studying systematic, but um, we need to not just learn uh, systematic theology or theology, but we need to take that and let it transform us into action. And that was some of the things I cautioned us about, because we were really loving knowledge, but not necessarily transforming anything. Um, well, we were, but not a lot. And the next thing I said was busyness, that we needed, to, we, we're all just so busy, we needed to prioritize and become uh, more about Jesus. And the last one was just laziness. We had um, we had some people that were not using uh, their time for useful contribution to the, 
to the uh, mission of God. And those were the, in 2009. Now, I've seen awesome transformation in that. And then 2010, some warnings were uh, that we wanted to be stay open to new people, which was just basically saying um, God might bring new people. And at first in 2009, whenever somebody new came, we're like, That's, they're new, they're new. Let's go get to know them. Like, how you doing? Let's go to lunch. Like, we were really excited, but we started, we started getting more people. And when you start getting more people, then you just kind of stay in your deal. And you're like, there's somebody new. Somebody will talk to them. Um, but I said we need to make sure we're staying open to new people. And I think we could still do this, um, although we're doing it great. I think we're doing really well at this. And the last thing was being open to change. This is warnings of 2010. When we first started, change wasn't a really, anything was really small. But now that we're almost getting into the third year mark, uh, there might be significant changes because God's going to start hopefully doing some more things in here. So we have to be even more open to change. Um, but in 2011, this is really just, the, I was trying to think, what what could I what is something that I think God is kind of making sure that we need to be thinking about? And really just one, really just one thing, which is this. Keeping ourselves on mission. Um, I talk with pastor friends all the time about, about how things are going. And one of the things I've, I've noticed is you can, like over the next two months, we're going to talk about mission, talk about mission, talk about mission. And this is probably what will happen because this is what happened. After hopefully two months, we're all going to be about mission, yeah! We're going to be like, yes! And then over October, November, we're going to be about mission, be about mission. But all of a sudden, Christmas hits, and by the time it gets to January, where we were, like mentally, and everything was going on, and we were all about it, um, because things happen, and life gets busy, and Christmas happens, and you're buying presents, you get back into January, and you're like, oh, you kind of look back over the last month and a half, and you're like, I don't think I've done really any kind of mission thing over the last month and a half. And so in, in January, you have to talk about mission again. And so this is what I mean when I say this. Um, what we need to think about is we don't want to just have kind of sporadic missional moments throughout the year. Although there's no doubt the year has seasons. But instead of just uh, thinking about mission, we should try to, and, and this is everybody, I'm not just saying you, I'm saying me as well. We should try to not just think about mission some, but actively keep ourselves uh, doing mission as much as we possibly can. And when I, Again, I'm going to unpack what I mean when I keep saying doing mission um, here in this sermon. So that's kind of the one warning that I have to say is that over the next couple months as you get mission sermon you know, to death, you're going to be accosted by mission. Um, we want to, after three more months... Not forget about it. So, um, but really, really making as many attempts as we can to constantly be on mission and really doing what the last thing Jesus told us to do in Matthew 28, which is make disciples. We want to remember to constantly, constantly make disciples. Um, now, sometimes when we hear the Matthew 28 ver- verse, let me just read Matthew 28 to you um, in case some of you are uh, not familiar with what I'm talking about. This is right before Christ ascends up into heaven. He, he says this. Um, he says, And Jesus came, I just love 17. I always am tempted to read 17 where it says some doubted. But in 18, um, And Jesus came and said to them, so This is right before he ascends up into heaven. This is what he says. The last words he says to them, to the people there. He goes, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. And he looks at them and says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And a lot of times what's concentrated on in Matthew 28 is that all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go! 
And we hear that go and we're like, okay, I gotta go. So that means like sell everything, move over to the Middle East and live really poor for the rest of my life. And instead of concentrating on the word go, the emphasis actually in the word and, and when Matthew was writing it is on the make disciples. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. And, and actually the go, um, and, and you've probably heard this, but the go is actually better translated as you are going. So really it means as you're going through life, make disciples every day. And so let me give you a little bit of a... Uh, an example of what I'm talking about. Um, I'll give you a biblical example and then I'll just give you an everyday life example for myself. Uh, in, in Luke chapter 5, I want you to hear this. Um, Luke chapter 5, this is the conversion or the calling, I should say, of Levi, which is just Matthew. Um, in Luke chapter 5, verse 27, this is when Jesus called Matthew to, to be a follower of his. This is what it says in Luke five twenty-seven. After this, he went out and he saw... Now, this is, I'm reading this because of this purpose. I'm wanting you to see that the Great Commission, the emphasis is on making disciples, not necessarily go, like sell everything, abandon everything in your whole life. Nothing matters anymore except for leaving and going over to the Middle East. That's not what, that's not what I think it means. I think it means something different. So I want to show you that it just means radically more make disciples where you are. And here we are, Luke, Luke 5, 27. And after this, he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi. This is Jesus sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And then 28, watch it, even says that thing that we think. Leaving everything, he rose and followed him. All right. So what does that mean? What, what does that mean? Look what it says in 29. And Levi, Matthew, made Jesus, him, a great feast in his house. Wait a second. I thought he left everything. Didn't he sell his house? Like, didn't he abandon everything and move over to, well, from the Middle East to America? That's where the unreached people groups were at that time? Well, it seems like he didn't sell his house. It seemed like he kept his house. And then actually, he invited a bunch of people over the very next day. So we can see that what we mean here when we say, go make disciples, the emphasis is on the make disciples part. It means open up your life now to the mission of God and what that means. And we're going to see that actually in this. And it says, Levi made him a great feast in his house and there was a large company of, look at this, tax collectors. So now we're getting a better understanding about what it means. Levi, before following Jesus, was a tax collector. And now all of a sudden when he says, follow me, it's who are the people around me that don't know Christ, that I want to know Christ. I'm going to start opening up my house, opening up my life, opening up all my opportunities for the people that I already know to come and meet Jesus. Now, he had, the, he had a little bit of a luxury that we don't have. He got to physically invite Jesus over to a party to his house. You're like, that's, that's pretty awesome. Like, we can't do that. Um, but, you know what I mean. Like, you can live your life now where you can invite people into your home and you can... Um, Speak the gospel. Announce the news of the gospel of Christ to them. And so that's what he does. He, he, um, in his way, of course, because it's 2,000 years ago. And there was a large number of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. And then you can see the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at, grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and, and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And this is Jesus' answer. And in this answer, we're going to see what Christ's mission is. Look at this. And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a, of a physician. So the Pharisees thought they were well. They didn't consider themselves you know, sinners like the tax collectors. They thought that they were fine. And so Jesus is addressing them and saying, you don't think you need a physician, although you do. 
But I have come because, but those who are sick need the physician. Those who are sinners need the doctor. They are the ones that need Jesus. They're the ones that need me, not me, but Jesus, because I have come to save the lost. And then he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So there we see what Jesus' mission is, but also not just what Jesus' mission is, but prior to that, we see what it looks like for someone to be called to mission. It means pattern your life right where you are to start making disciples. And here's my modern day example is, is this. Um, many of you know I have four children. And so a couple years ago, <clears throat> I went up to my oldest at the time and I said, her name's JC. I said, guess what, JC? You get to be a soccer player. And she's like, yes, what's a soccer player? Um, <laughs> very good. Um, it's a sport and basically it's on the ground and you kick it and it goes in the goal. All right. I mean, you can tell kids anything and they're all about it. And so... The reason why I told her she gets to be a soccer player is not because I have like visions of her being Pele. Um, I probably, you have no idea who Pele is. I just dated myself. Um, a great soccer player. I don't even know a great soccer player today. Um, the guy from England, whatever. So um, I don't have visions of her being awesome at soccer. You know, she's okay, you know, she's okay. Um, but the reason why I want her to be a soccer player is because God has put me in a stage in life where I can be a coach of a soccer team. So I can, I can sign her up, I can tell the lady, hey, I want to be a soccer coach, and then I get to have 14 new people that I've never met before be a part of my circle, where I get to email them all the time about stuff, I get to talk to them about Jesus because they all want to ask me questions. So I've now created a, a place for me to meet more people, to be able to, with the, I mean, the only reason JC's playing soccer is because I want to make disciples. And I'm using, I mean, she knows that, I'm using um, my stage in life to create scenarios where I can be around more people. This is exactly what Matthew did. So that's what I mean as you're going. What stage of life are you, are you in? Is it, your office now, you've got people around you, or are you single and you've got extra time, not single, or you're married with no kids and you've got extra time to create scenarios, or if you have kids, you've got to be creative like I am. I'm coaching two soccer teams this year. I've got 28 families that I get to oversee and talk about with. So I'm just going to, what I'm saying is, wherever you are, the point of, of this and the point of mission is creating scenarios where you get more opportunities to tell people about Christ and the gospel. Not just saying, well, I'm just going to kind of sit back here, um, watch TV, and God's going to bring somebody in my life. You know, somebody, hopefully, that doesn't know Jesus. God will magically appear before me, and they're going to come and knock at my door and say, hey, you know, I don't know Jesus. Could you be the person that tells me? No, that's not how it works. It's I'm going to cre create scenarios Create opportunities where I can have people over or I can be around people that don't know Christ and, and do as much as I can. That's kind of my modern day example. And that's what we mean when we're saying being on mission. That's what we mean by um, as you're going, making disciples. So that's what we mean. All right. So we saw in Luke 5 um, what Jesus's mission was. Um, and it's a little bit different than ours, although it's the exact same. And, and I'm going to explain what I mean by that. In Luke 5, let me just read it to you one more time. Luke 5.32, Jesus said this. He said, if I can find it. All right. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He's going to say this 
in, in a similar way. I'm sure you've heard Zacchaeus, the story of Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man and he climbed up in the sycamore tree. Same kind of deal. And he said, come follow me. Um, and then the very end of, the, of the, the section of scripture, this is what Jesus says. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Very similar language to Luke 5. That the seek and save the lost is, math, uh, was, is Luke 19.10. This is very similar language to Luke 5. So we can see two statements of Christ. Luke 5, Luke 19, where he's saying basically the same thing. I have come to call the, the sinners to repentance. I've come to seek and save the lost. Now, that was Jesus' mission when he was on earth. That's what he was called to do. And that's what he's called us to do, to seek and save the lost. He's called us to call sinners to repentance. But there's a little bit of a different way now. Um, this is what I mean. That was Jesus' mission. That's the mission of God when he was on earth. And then they crucified him. And it's still his mission today um, with one difference. And this is what I mean. You're like, difference? What are you talking about? All right, this is what I mean. Um, maybe you're not like that, but this is what I mean. Um, he's not here walking around on earth anymore. It's 2,000 years later. And so he's not calling to, pe to people to repentance anymore. The something that has shifted is that Christ isn't here. And now, um, because the mission is still the same, we want to seek and save the lost. We want to call sinners to repentance. The way the mission happens now is through the church. All right, let me read you a text. And, and this is Ephesians 3. If you're in Ephesians 2, you can... Flip over, maybe it's on the same page. But in Ephesians 3.10, there's a little phrase inside of Ephesians 3.10 that says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. All right, so here's the deal. The mission of God is still the same. We want to call sinners to repentance. We want to seek and save the lost. But Christ isn't here anymore. He's not walking around on earth, you know, calling people to repentance. So the way that the mission of God has happened now, and he instituted at his, at his death, um, is, is through the church now. So the way the mission happens is through the church. It's his plan. Let me be very specific. It's through the local church. His plan, his mission, his, Jesus' plan to call sinners to repentance is now through the local church. Now, it's made up of Christians, and we as Christians live our lives on mission, etc. But he wants the local church, every single local church, to be on mission. And so that's what we're doing now. So if we're going to talk about mission and we're going to talk about the church, um, I think it's really helpful for us right now to talk about what is the church. Because if the church is the mission center of God. Like every single local church is where God has decided it's through you now that the manifold wisdom of God is going to be made known. You're, the, you're my instrument. You're my bride. You're my body. You are the one, church, that I want to call people to repentance, that I want to seek and save the lost through. I think it's helpful for us to actually talk about what is the church. What is the church? Um, and this will take pretty much the rest of the sermon today, and then we're going to talk about why all this mission talk. So, we are doing pretty well. All right, um, here's, here's a short definition of the church. Here's a short definition of the church. This is by Grudem up here. Uh, it says this, The church is the community of all true believers for all time. So now we can start thinking about church in two different ways. All right, and they, lots of different ways our, our terms are used, but let's just use uh, local church, universal church, all right? Local church is 
us gathered together and every single one of them, a gathering together of bodies, some, you know, small, some large, some medium sized, whatever, every single local church. And that's what we talk about. But there's also the church universal, which is every believer for all time, everywhere. They're all a member or a part of the body of Christ. They're all part of the church. But you also have the local body, the church. Okay. so what we're talking about right now is the local church. So. We want to talk about what is the definition of a local church. And one of the best definitions that I've ever found um, is from a book called Vintage Church by Mark Driscoll. Um, this is a really, really solid definition of a local church. There's so much in here. Um, so he has eight things that really make up the definition of a local church inside this. And you'll see them up here. This is um, the definition of a local church. The local church is a community of regenerated believers. So it's a gathering together of people who have been regenerated by God. So they're, they're Christians. They have to be Christians. Um, a community of regenerated believers who confess Jesus Christ as Lord in obedience to Scripture. They organize under qualified leadership. So every local church has to have uh, qualified leadership. Elders and deacons is the system of government that we see in in 1 Timothy 3. Um, So they organize under qualified leadership. They gather regularly for preaching and worship. So there is a, there is a, a gathering together always of a local church that happens on Sunday where you take the Lord's Supper, where you sing praises to God, where you, you sit under the word. Um, and we do that every week. And while we're here, there's something uniquely special about you getting to sing with her and her getting to sing with you. And as we gather together, we sing out praises and then we fellowship with one another and we unite our hearts together in one spirit and worship together and fellowship with one another. So that's another very unique thing. We, we organize regularly under preaching and worship under <clears throat> we observe the biblical sacraments of baptism and communion um, which we have here and we're doing today uh, communion and they're unified by the spirit so the ephesians 4 piece where we want uh, people always unified seeking unity as a church body um, and then another one our discipline for holiness so we want every person in the, in the church who has been regenerated not to just say, now that I'm a Christian, I'm in. But also to constantly seek holiness. Every day to seek to be more like Christ. And then there's other people around them that will, that will help them be more like Christ. And if someone is walking in willful, willful disobedience to Christ, just finding themselves diving headlong into sin, then they're disciplined. The, the leadership, which we already talked about of the church, will go to them and call them back to repentance following the steps of Matthew 18, where one person, then two person, then the church. So they're disciplined for holiness because Christ has already declared his bride to be pure and holy. So they scatter. So they gather together on Sundays. And as they gather together on Sundays for that special thing um, of worshiping together, then the other six days they scatter. And it says they scatter to fulfill the great commandment The great commandment is to love God, love your neighbors. Um, And then the great commission, which is what we just read in Matthew 28, as missionaries to the world for, here it is, God's glory and their joy. I mean, that's a jam-packed, jam-packed definition, but it's great. That's what the local church is. So if we're going to talk about mission and talk about God's plan for mission, God's plan for calling sinners to repentance has to be through the local church because he's told us in Ephesians 3.10, among other places, this is what the local church is. So as we see this, we see that the local church isn't about having my preferences. It isn't about having um, everything focused around me. 
It's about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus and his glory and his mission. Church isn't a place where God has designed it that we can attend on Sundays, remain anonymous, be apathetic to the mission, and then just kind of go about our own business the rest of the week. That's not what church is. Instead, church is not a place at all. Church is a people, ecclesia, the called out ones. Church is a people that are joined together because we have been regenerated and saved by God. Church is a people who pray for their leadership and submit to their authority. Church is a people who long to be together for worship and preaching and communion. Church is a people who love each other and lay aside personal preferences for the sake of each other in order to advance the mission. Church is a place where we love each other um, enough to be real about sin in our lives and we love each other enough that when we're real, we don't rebuke them and say, well, you're just horrible. Good luck with that. Um, instead, we want to come around them. We want to get in the trenches with them and pray with them and, and pray that they would come out of that. Let me read you a little text from, I'm not a text, I'm sorry, a quote from Matt Chandler. This is a great little quote about this idea of what church should be like. It says, if your view, if you view church as some sort of buffet, then you severely limit the likelihood of your growing into maturity. Growth into godliness can hurt. For instance, as I interact with others in my local body, my own slothfulness and zeal is exposed, as is my lack of patience, my prayerlessness, and my hesitancy to associate with the lowly. Yet this interaction also gives me the opportunity to be lovingly confronted by brothers and sisters who are in the trenches with me, as well as a safe place to confess and repent. But when church is just the place you attend without ever joining, like an ecclesiological buffet, ecclesiological just means um, church, like a church kind of buffet, you must... You just might consider whether you're always leaving whenever your heart begins to be exposed by the Spirit and real work is beginning to happen. So, in other words, whenever I'm going to church and I start realizing that I'm a sinner and Spirit's convicting me and I feel like I'm going to say something to somebody, but they know I'm a sinner and they see me speak harshly to my wife, speak harshly to my kids, they see that I'm in kind of some kind of sin. If church is just an ecclesiological buffet, you're like, all right, that's awkward and weird and it hurts and that holiness hurts i'm getting out of here Uh, i'm not going to be a part of this anymore and we can't have church be that way so church is not that instead church is a place where people come they join together in the mission of god ready to reach their neighbors for christ church is a place who have a vision of something much larger than themselves which is namely god reconciling the world to himself and all of us now are able to join in with this mission in our own expression, in our own way, here in this local body. That's what the, the local church is. So, all of these things that we've talked about are to be sought after intensely in, in every single local expression, local body of a New Testament church. And if they aren't, then we have to say, all right, wh- what are some of the things that we need to return to into the New Testament, and how can we be a far more effective New Testament church? All right, so... Um, All churches have basically, I talked about those eight things in that definition, but all churches are going to really accomplish three major things. Three major things. This isn't mine. This is an original. This is from Wayne Groom. And these three things are very simple. And you'll see these three things in our mission statement as I read it. But three major things. The first one is ministry to God. The first major thing is ministry to God. And this is just the glorification of God. This means that 
Um, churches fulfill the major purpose of the church, which is worship. Um, we want to, and this is the, the upward action of the church. We want to worship God with everything we are. That's one of the first things. The second thing is ministry to believers. And this is just believers in Christ inside your body. All right, so if the first one was the upward, this is kind of the inward. This is um, discipling and caring for people in the church. So you have your upward ministry to God, worshiping God. You also have your second one, which is your ministry or your care for believers. And then your third one, which is a very obvious one, I, guess, I bet you can even guess it, which is the ministry to the world. This is, if there's upward and inward, this is the outward part. And th- those are the three things. Every mission statement you read, everything, every, when you search the scriptures, um, this is the three-part goal or mission of every local church. Now here's the deal. Um, this is really important. Every mission statement will have these things, but every church must make sure that they keep all three of these things in balance. Because if you get really focused in on one and neglect the other two, you're not necessarily being a balanced church. So what we want to, uh, what we want to do is not just focus, we don't want to just have like an awesome worship band, just that, and then want to just all we are is about worship. The other things can take care of themselves. We just, we just focus on the first ministry. All three of those things are completely equal in value and are all three very, very, very important. We want to worship God with everything we have. We want to care for every member and see every person that's in Christ grow to be better disciples. And we also want to go out and make disciples, see the lost come to Christ. And there must be always in a, in a body an equal value placed on all three and an equal pursuit of all three in the life of every believer, in the life of every person in the church. So that's why we have this mission statement, which says Remedy Church exists to glorify God. That's that first piece by calling all peoples into fellowship with him. That's the outward and with one another that's caring for them. And why through or how through Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that we're struggling, as Colossians one twenty nine says, struggling forward with all of his energy, not ours, because it's all because of Christ and the power of the spirit. All right. So that's the introduction. Now to the good part. Um, and I think I have time. Um, why even have a mission? Now, hopefully we know that's because God has given us a mission, that that's his plan for people being made disciples is through the local church. But why is all this mission talk important? Why is it important to, instead of just saying, well, I'm in, whoo, that's it. Why is it important to say, because God has made this mission, because he's given this mission, I want to do it with everything inside of me. I have to accomplish this mission. Why? And the reason why is because of the gospel. It's always been because of the gospel. And we might, you might say, that's all we talk about here is the gospel. <laughs> yes, that's all we talk about here because that's all we have. We have nothing else. It's not, um, we need to talk about, I've honestly heard this. I mean, I, I honestly heard where instead of, we want to talk about husbands and wives and being good husbands and wives, but we want to talk about that in the context of the gospel. Like we, the gospel has to over, if I just give you helpful hints to raising godly kids and just say, you know, take them out for ice cream and, you know, give them a bath every day so they don't smell bad, then that's, none of that's gospel centered. Or if I say, to be a good husband and wife, you want to make sure you smell good. Um, like that kind of stuff, okay, but unbelievers can give that advice. What's the advice that I can get from a church that 
only a church can tell me, and that is the gospel. Like, it's all we have. And if we hold out, we announce this, this good news every single week that Christ has come and died for us, and because he's died for us, you are now declared completely righteous. You are holy as Jesus. Well, then we can talk about how to be a husband and wife. Like, so all we have is the gospel. It's the only hope I have to give you. So, yes, I have to talk about the gospel every single week. It has, and when we talk about the gospel, sometimes, when I grew up in church, this is what, I, this is what that meant to me. What it meant was, okay, then the pastor's going to give me some helpful hints for living, and then at the very end, in case there's an unbeliever here, he's going to tell them how to get converted so that they can become a Christian. And then next week, they can hear the help for hence for life. And that is not at all what I mean when I say, all I have for you is the gospel. What I mean is, yes, we want to see conversion. I want to see unbelievers come to know Christ. But for every single believer here, you need to hear me tell you, and you need to preach to yourself every day, the good news of Christ, the announcement that Christ Jesus has come and died for you. So the gospel, the good news that Christ has died, isn't just for the conversion of unbelievers. Instead, it's the everyday message that believers have to hear to walk in sanctification, to walk in becoming more like Christ. So that's what we do this for. So I want to just to rehearse the gospel with us this morning. Because it is the best message you could ever hear. And I'm hoping that it'll be a great um, beginning point or diving board as we go into the Lord's Supper today. So Ephesians 2. Um, the bad news, really, really awful, horrible, terrible news is in verses 1 through 3. And then the best two words in the world, verse 4, begin verse 4. And then we got the gospel. So let's, let's look at this. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. All right, so already we're seeing that none of us sought after God. None of us um, sought Christ. Every single one of us willingly turned away before we met Christ. It's saying that we were dead spiritually, we weren't just bad people because of sin, but we were dead. We were corpse laying on the ground. And the thing about corpse laying on the ground is they don't do anything. They can't do anything ever unless someone comes and makes them alive. All they can do is lay their dead and perish. And it says we were dead in our trespasses and sin in which we all once walked. So every single one of us followed the course of the world. We followed the prince of the power of the air. We've, we've said this over and over, but it means that we followed Satan. And then it says, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So that's the same spirit that's carrying unbelievers. And listen, um, that sentence alone, when we look at people that don't know Christ, should crush our soul for them. It should absolutely move you to tears that they are being led by the spirit of the son of disobedience. When you look at them, you shouldn't just say, oh, I hope they get their act together. You should look into their soul, not that you can, but look into it and say, I care for you so deeply, I don't want you to walk in that anymore. I want to tell you the gospel. And that's what we say, arranging your life around making disciples. How intentional are you being? Are you 
creating places for you to have more opportunities to share the gospel with people. Because this verse is what's true of people that don't know Jesus. And it should move us. We should, as men and women of God, weep for the lost sometimes. We should. And it says, among whom we all once lived because our condition was theirs at one time. In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So what that means is those that are outside of Christ, the wrath of God remains on them. Now, wrath, when we think about it... um, if your parents' wrath has rested on you, you were pretty fearful. And when my dad, or my, really my dad's wrath rested on me growing up, I was fearful of that. I wasn't really fearful of my mom's wrath. She didn't even have wrath. Um, but when my dad's wrath rested on me, it was fear, I, was, I was afraid. Um, how much more then for unbelievers who have willfully rebelled against God, how much more should all of us, when the wrath of God rests on them, this isn't just some kind of temporary punishment this is an eternal punishment because he is infinite the wrath of god rests on them because they are willfully choosing to to go against him so that's the bad news verses one through three i mean it couldn't get any worse we're dead corpses laying on the ground no hope nothing unless someone outside of us comes and does something we will perish forever and then verse four i mean These two words should shake our souls. But God. The status was dead. And listen. He would have been completely, completely righteous and just to just let it stay like that. He could have just said, well, that's what's righteous. You willingly chose to rebel. That's what you get. And he would have remained holy, just, and good, and righteous if he had. But because he overflows with compassion and love, more than we could ever overflow with, but we want to be like him. But God, seeing our condition, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, this is the way Paul writes, so he put a little phrase in there, so the but God go over to, right there in the middle of five, made us alive. So that's, that's the idea of the way the sentence works. But God made us alive. Why did he make us alive? Because of his rich mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were completely dead in our trespasses, willingly, we weren't like helpless. We chose that. We were helpless, but we chose that. Um, because of his great love with which he loved us, he made us alive together with Christ made us alive together with Christ. Now, what does that mean? Made us alive together with Christ. Because that means we were dead, he sent his spirit in to resuscitate us, and then he made us alive now in Christ. So what does this truth mean? What does it practically look like every day for us to be made together now with Christ? Is it just, well, I'm alive spiritually, I'm assured heaven, Jesus is my little tag on, and... We ride side by side, and I drive, and if things are bad, you know, I give him the steering wheel, and just don't make me car sick, and then whenever we're good, I get it back again. Is that what it means? I don't think that's what it means. Paul uses some radical language to explain this. Let me, let me take you two pages to the left to Galatians 2.20, and let's just look at what it means now to say, 
once God has come into your life and made you alive, what does that practically look like now every day? This is what it looks like. All right. This is what you're supposed to count yourself. I have been crucified with Christ. We've got to stop. 2,000 years ago, God saw every man. This was every man's predicament. Every man was dead. God knew this from eternity past. And the plan was, I want to take care of that because I abound in mercy. So the only thing that can happen is, instead of me pouring out all of my wrath on them, instead, I'm going to pour out all of my wrath on my own son, who is perfect. And he will take the place of them. And when he takes the place of them, all of his righteousness, therefore, can now be imputed into them. They can be raised, and now they are counted as righteous. And all of my wrath has been poured on Jesus, and he now has been, in all of their sin, of all of mankind, has been imputed into him. And this is what it says. I have been crucified with Christ. So what we're supposed to think now is, 2,000 years ago, when Jesus was nailed to the cross, those were my hands too. Those were my feet. I was crucified with him. And if I was crucified, you know what happened? I died. I died. Look what it says. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So this made alive with Christ means you are dead And Jesus is now alive and you are to reckon, you are to count yourself now as dead. Though you do still live, assuredly. You you walk around, you breathe, you enjoy food, you get married, you have children, you enjoy life, you have joy. You do live, but you reckon yourself as dead. Meaning, my goals, my desires, my passion, my glory was buried when I became a Christian. Everything's about Christ. His glory. His mission, His everything. That's what I'm living my life for. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And look, here's the practical thing. And the life I now live in the flesh, because we do still live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So practically it means, I woke up this morning and I said, God, you're giving me breath right now, but this isn't my life. This is Jesus' life. Every breath I draw today, every conversation I have today, everything I do today is not, is not me. It's you. Because I'm dead. Every person that's a Christian died 2,000 years ago, and you live in me, Colossians 1.29, so now I struggle with your energy. I live by the Spirit. I live by faith in Christ, that I am righteous because of your work on the cross, and I can now assuredly be with you one day. That's what it practically means. Now, back over to Ephesians 2. And look what this is. And this is these are promises of God in verse 6. Precious, awesome, unbelievable promises that are true right now, though you still walk around on earth. This is what's true. Look what it says. Notice the, the verb tenses. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. This is an already, not yet. Like That's what's true of you already, but not yet. And then it says, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The most simple verse, that you, if anybody ever says, what does it mean to be saved? The most simple verse is verse 8 right here. For by grace you have been saved through faith. You were dead. God showed grace to make you alive. And that, your act in that, 
of being saved was whenever you were dead, he showed you grace. You put faith in the work of Christ and that exercise of faith, that act of faith that you did along with God's grace saved you. Grace through faith. All right, so we're all of a sudden thinking, okay, that sounds like a 50-50 deal. God showed the grace. I had the faith. We worked together. And in one way, yeah. In one way, yeah. But also in another way, no. Why? Well, because the rest of this verse. How did you exercise that faith? Where did that faith come from? Did you conjure it up on your own? Did you will it yourself? In order that God would receive all the glory for our salvation and not a 50-50 deal, he tells us, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. I don't want to erase or minimize the fact that your faith was your faith. You're not a robot. You put faith in God. You have volition. You have will. You really choose. That's biblical. It's all over the text. All, all through the scriptures. We really choose. We're not robots. God has created a world because he's God and he can do it where people really choose and he really gets all the glory for really saving you completely and thoroughly. And he did it all. And you really choose. He's God. We don't understand that? Well, of course. We're not God. So I don't want to erase the fact that you really do choose. But at the same time, Paul is really, really wanting us to know that all of this is because of God. And he, the reason why we know that is because of nine, not a result of works. Works, what are you talking about? This exercise of faith would be considered a work for your salvation if it wasn't a gift from God. And you could say, I worked for my salvation. I did an act. And he's really not wanting you to do it. It's not that act or it's not all the good works you're going to do now that you're in Christ that save you. None of those things save you. Look what he says. Verse 8, we'll go back to verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not is your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So that no one may boast. That little so that no one may boast reminds me of a few other texts. I just want to tell them to you, um, because Paul, Paul has some, Paul has some, I mean, if Paul was alive today, he'd have some, like, awesome, awesome tweets. Like, everybody would retweet that junk. So. Um, we don't retweet it now. We're, it's amazing. Like, if I write a Bible verse on Twitter, no one retweets it. I write something else that I come up with. People retweet I'm like, why would you not retweet the Bible verse? That's God's word. Anyway, that's just a side note. So here it is. Here, one page over when he talks about boasting. But far be it from me to boast. I'm sorry. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He's saying, if I'm going to boast about anything, this is Galatians 6.14, anything at all, the only thing I'm going to boast about is the cross. Otherwise, I'm not even going to say anything. That's Galatians. Let me read you another one. This is Romans um, 15, 18. What a great line this is. Romans 15, 18. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. If I'm going to say a word, I'm just going to talk about how Christ has accomplished salvation. Otherwise, you know, I don't really want to say anything. Awesome. One other one in 2 Corinthians. Um, this is 2 Corinthians 10. This is a really simple one. Um, 2 Corinthians 10, 17. This is what he says. Uh, 
Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So, when we're talking about boasting here, we're talking about, so that no one may boast, it's not just to... Paul isn't trying to just keep you from the negative thing, which is, oh, I want to boast about myself. Instead, he's trying to point you to the positive thing, which is, I want you to give glory to God. Don't boast about yourself. The opposite of that is, boast in Jesus. Glorify Him. Let every word you say only be about the cross. Only be about what He's talked, done in your life. Everything you say to people, let it be about the work in your life that He's done and how they can come to know Him. That's what He's saying. I don't want to boast because I didn't do anything. It's all because of God. And then He says this, verse 10. He didn't just raise you to life to be saved. Instead, verse 10 says, He also has a future for you while you're here. It's not just raised to life, go to heaven. Why not? Because there's stuff to do here. Namely, what we've been talking about the whole time. Mission. Mission. This is what he says. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, look at that, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Don't miss this, okay? This isn't just for the super Christians or the leaders or the pastors or the ones who got it all together. If you're in Christ, even if you're just an absolute wreck, God has created you to do good works. As a matter of fact, He has created the good works already for you to do. Your life is a mess. Guess what? He's got this massive list of good works that He's already created for you to do that He just wants you to walk in them. So the mess in this, in this room or the one that's got it all together and everybody in between. I don't know if anybody's got it all together, but all of the, uh, the rest of us who don't have it all together. There is a ton of stuff, a ton, a huge list of good works that God has prepared beforehand, which means before you were born, so you can't boast, He did it all already, that you should walk in them. I mean, that last part. And this is where I don't want to ever take away the actual, real, volitional will decision-making that we have. We have to volitionally decide, I'm going to walk in it. And when we walk in it, we did it in Christ's power. But you have to finally say, I'm going to walk in it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to start walking in those things. And well, what are they? What's this magic list? Somebody could email it to me or something? No, it doesn't work like that. You just start arranging your life around seeing as many people come to know Christ. You start thinking about where you are in your life and how you can use that to put more people in your life, to show hospitality, to tell them the gospel. And you'll start walking in it. There's no magic deal. I mean, it's just that simple. There's people around you that don't know Christ. As you're going, make disciples. Because of the glorious gospel. And this is just one text. It's all over the word. Because of the glorious gospel that we've been saved. And because of this gospel, because of this gospel... Now we want to make disciples and we want to do his mission. I'm going to pray and then we're going to go into our time of Lord's Supper. So let's close our eyes and pray. Lord, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you that you have a mission for us to seek and save the lost. But God, thank you for the gospel, which is the reason we have a mission, which is 
our passion, which is our desire. It is the reason why we want to carry out your mission, because you have saved us in Christ. So we thank you, God, for that. Be with us now as we go to the table, Lord. And may we respond with worship. And God, may we leave worshiping. May we leave ready to live and and do your mission. I pray this in Jesus' name.